This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 57. I want to take a moment right now to thank all of my listeners for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in iTunes and anywhere else that you might be listening to this show. And also be sure to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. So as I promised my listeners this week for episode 57, we are having an interview with Jeff Harmon from the Master Photography and Photo Taco podcast. Jeff is a sports photographer. He considers himself a hobbyist, and I don't want to get into an argument with him on here because I (laughs) personally think he's a lot more talented than just a hobbyist. But uh, Jeff, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So you've been keeping yourself really busy. I know you've got the two different podcasts that you work on and you work in IT for a day job as well as doing photography yourself. So you're you're spread pretty thin, especially with having children as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I have a lot, plenty going on, which is good. It's good to keep me busy. Yeah, absolutely. So the first question, uh, for those who may not be familiar, tell us a little bit about yourself and your photography background, if you would, please. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a long story. You can cut me off if you want to, but I I bought my first real camera uh, back in in 2011 for Christmas. Uh, A little over eight years ago now. I can't believe it's it's really been that long. (coughs) Excuse me, that long. But uh, I have three kids, uh, 11, 8, and 5 back then when I got the camera. Uh, they were all participating in like sports and plays and dance and, and all kinds of things. We were trying really hard to get pictures of them. We had this little Canon power shot point and shoot camera. It just, it wasn't quite cutting it. it you, we couldn't get the results we wanted where we were sitting as audience you know, watching them do their stuff. So we decided to invest in a camera that Christmas. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I, I wanted to get a big family gift being a DSLR that year. So uh, I, I went and got it, and as I was looking for stuff, I, I didn't know what all these numbers meant on all this camera equipment that we were looking at. I was totally uneducated with it. I didn't have any idea about camera brands either, but I had the Canon PowerShot already, so I just decided, well, I may as well stick with Canon. I at least learned a little bit about it with the PowerShot. And so I ended up kind of defaulting to, not making an educated choice, but defaulting to a Canon 60D back then and it came with some kit lenses the 1855 and the uh the 55 to 250 which i again i, I had no idea there's all those numbers on there i had no idea what they were so i but i, I ended up with that camera and uh you know right after christmas we, we had this like playroom down in our basement and here in utah there's there's basements in pretty much every house so we went down to our basement and we were playing around and i was trying out my camera and uh, i couldn't i still couldn't get good sharp pictures of those kids playing around and it was enough that my wife even said are you sure you got the right camera <laughs> as I was playing around with it and uh and I said no I'm sure it's just that I don't know what I'm doing with it but it, it was a total disaster they were horribly dark and blurry and uh it, it was just it was a problem so I I started looking into it I started trying to figure out how do you use this thing what do you do what do all these buttons mean what what is everything here 
and uh, and it's kind of turned into a pretty passionate hobby for me since then. So I, I don't consider myself a pro, just like you said. I, I'm not paying my bills with my photography, and that's what most people associate with a professional photographer is that's their, their career. It's their job. It's how they make the money that's supporting them and their family. And that is not the case for me. I, it, my, my day job is definitely the IT stuff. Like you said, I'm not looking to replace that anytime soon. I'm still really enjoying that. And I'm, I'm pretty good at that too. So that's, that's where I'm staying. And that's why this is a hobby. This is something I do for fun. Something I kind of do on the side. And one of my very favorite things to do is shooting sports, but I shoot a lot of stuff too, lots of different genres, but that's kind of my basic background and, and what I bring to the podcast that I do too. I think there's a lot of people that identify with that same background with me, and that's why it's kind of a, my the other podcasts I do are pretty popular. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, so starting out, you, had, you hadn't learned any of the intricacies of photography, the exposure right. triangle or any of that stuff yet, so it was kind of hit or miss when you were first trying this out. So how, how did you learn? How did you teach yourself? Where, uh, did you turn to YouTube or, or Lin, what is it, Lydia.com videos or something else? Or did you talk to other photographers first? Yeah, so very first thing I did was I, I'd already been listening to podcasts in 2011 when we were doing this. And so I was searching for a good podcast that would help me learn it. And I, I went through all kinds of them. Um, there's, there were a few available at the time. There's definitely a lot more since that time that have come up, but, uh, none of them really were trying to speak to the beginner or hobbyist photographer. It was all these pros talking about stuff and, and they were using the language that I, I didn't understand. That's why I was trying to get help. I was like, I don't know what this is. So, uh, most of them didn't work, but I ran across improved photography at the time. And, uh, and then they, I figured out they had a website and there was a bunch of free tutorials there. I'd mixed in some other YouTube stuff too, to, to try to learn it and figure it out later. So, you know, a couple of years later beyond that, I, I, I did pay for some other training, um, just to, to make sure I, I was learning it. And I do it even today. Occasionally I will go and pay for some video training and something specific that I want to learn about. I'll find like an expert in that field. And sometimes I'll ask them to come on the show to help me <laughs> as I, as I come on to, to like the photo taco podcast, I'll have them come on and, and help me with it there. Uh, but that, that, as I was getting started, it's just I ran into improved photography and then I ended up kind of joining that team and, and helping that team to do more of what I was looking for when I when I first started. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. And one of the dilemmas, and I and I hear this all the time, especially from student photographers, um, I just finished my, I've been doing photography off and on for 30 years, but I just finished my official bachelor's degree in it a couple of years ago. Huh? And I get hit up by students all the time because, you know, they'll turn to YouTube, but then they get conflicting information on YouTube. Right, that's that's right. one of the big drawbacks about YouTube. It can be a great place or a great repository to learn things like photography or cinematography or anything else for that matter. But it's a matter of whether or not you're getting quality content. Sure. Yeah, I agree. There, there is a lot of uh, incorrect information out there. And it's, it's some of it's like myth that keeps perpetuating and people keep doing it. Or some of it's like assumptions that people assume because they have done, used their camera in a certain way, they're assuming some things are true. And um, without actually like truly testing to see if it's true, uh, it's kind of what I my specialty is with the Photo Taco podcast is I, I actually put stuff to the deep test and go try to find out exactly how this works and, and what it means. And I've discovered there's a lot of there's not a lot. There's a few things that are just accepted as truth 
by a lot of photographers that end up not quite being true. We're going to probably go through a little bit of that in this episode, but uh, it's been super interesting and and it's tough to figure out what is real, what is not, what matters for photographers and what doesn't, because that's another, another challenge I've found with a lot of the stuff on YouTube in particular is people will stress the thing that kind of was important to them, but in the grand scheme of things, doesn't end up being important for a lot of photographers um, and, and leads to information that's just not that helpful as you try to learn it. Yeah, absolutely. And I know uh, I've, for years I followed both Jared Poland from O's Photo. Uh, I'm uh-huh. from Pennsylvania originally, a couple hours north of where Jared's from. So we kind of know each other. We're not like best friends in real life or anything like that. Uh-huh. And I also know Ken Rockwell. Ken, I know a little bit better. Again, I've never met him in real life, but we correspond by by email and phone calls and stuff like that. And I found that both of them had great information for people starting out in photography. And I would direct a lot of people to both their sites. And there's even been times in the past where they've kind of had a bit of a a squabble between the two of them on various things, especially the whole raw versus JPEG thing. (laughs) Um, Most people have heard about that by now between those two. Uh, But I found them both to be great sources of information. And Ken has a lot of really interesting uh, I would say more like blog post articles on various areas of photography, the exposure triangle, uh, uh, avoiding gear acquisition syndrome or gas, as he calls it, and other people call yeah. it. And uh, he also has some great acronyms for how to get, you know, tax sharp focused. He has different ones that he he's created for or different areas of photography, and some of them sound kind of weird, like fart and stuff like that, but it it actually is an acronym for a whole bunch of other things that has to do with getting sharp focus in your photos. Uh So it can can definitely get a little bit interesting, and the biggest thing I run into with students is, like I said, you know, they get conflicted information because one person's talking about this, and it was something that was probably, like you said, more important to them when they were starting out, but maybe not so much for a lot of other people. And that's one of the reasons why I really love the shows that you and your team do on Master Photography, as well as yours on the Photo Taco podcast, because you're trying not to, you're, you do your best in your team on Master Photography, you guys do your best to not try to interject too much of your personal um, thoughts and thought processes into photography, but you try to keep things as neutral as possible so that it's beneficial to a much wider audience. And I think you guys do a great job at that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's certainly one of the objectives we have. Absolutely. So we'll move on now to question number two. And don't worry about how long you talk. My interview episodes are long format. I generally like them (laughs) to be at least an hour. And believe it or not, I had one with one of my former professors who was a photojournalist that went an hour and 40 minutes. Okay. And my last one recently on off-camera flash with one of my stu- uh, classmates from the school that I went to ended up going two hours on off-camera flash. And believe it or not, <laughs> they are two of my most popular episodes, even though they're super long. So no worries sure. there, buddy. All right. Sounds good. Okay. So number two, what started your interest is specifically in sports shooting? And do you only do high school sports or have you done some other sports as well, college and other levels? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, a probably a lot more to the story that I could say here, but no, I, I don't just shoot sports. Uh, I know we're, we're going to focus more on that in this episode and that's fine. But yeah, I, I do. I love like every genre I've ever tried of photography. I'd love to go do underwater and I, whatever. I, I, I'm up for any of it. Um, my the problem is just going to be like time and budget. <laughs> so uh, so I, I love it all. And I think all of it helps me to learn. 
I'm constantly learning about photography. I'm constantly learning about how you can edit the photos on the computer. There's just, there's so much to it and so much to learn uh, that I, I love to do it. And anytime I cross over into something, a new genre, I'm learning other things that helps me in the stuff I already feel pretty comfortable with. So I, I, it's a never ending quest of learning. It's maybe why I like it as much as I do, because I love learning as well. It's just really a lot of fun. But I, I started shooting sports because of my kids again. That's where it all came from. Uh, they were in soccer and basketball and dance and, and all kinds of things. That's why we bought the camera in the first place. And, um, and so I was doing that and I, when I finally learned enough about how to use the camera that I could finally start to freeze their action and get sharp images, uh, I realized that I needed to make more investment in gear and specifically in lenses because that was a, a, something holding me back. But the other thing was frame rate was just too slow and I, I had to kind of address that. So I saved up for some time and uh, doubled that frame rate going from 5 to 10 by buying a Canon 70 Mark II the new camera combined with the new lenses. And, and I, I started to really get some fun pictures of my kids as we were going through it. And then as I was sharing those with friends and family, um, there, it just led to conversations with some other people in the area, in my local area. And I, I got good enough at it that through the connections I made with the women's high school basketball team, I, uh, they asked me to shoot individual game photos and the, the team individual game photos in the 2015 to 2016 basketball season. So, uh, so I did that and that was so much fun. Again, I learned a lot. I learned a lot being there on the sidelines and taking pictures during the game and it was really fun. And, and then they had me do it again the next year and, and they added to it. We did, I did create these, I call them game day photos where I took the individual shots from the girls as we took their team photos and I would create like advertising, uh, I don't know, images that the school could use on social media to advertise their games. And that helped uh, increase the attendance because people knew about the games and the images were like uh, compelling enough. The students were sharing them. It was really fun. It was just a lot of fun there. So that's kind of how I got started into it when the the men's team, men's basketball team at the local high school saw what I did for the women. They asked me to do it for them. And so I, I did that for a few seasons. Um, and then, and, and really that's kind of all I've done with it. I haven't tried to do any college, um, just timing wise. I haven't done that. And I don't have the same like easy connection there that I ended up <laughs> leveraging to get to the high school stuff. Cause the people in my area saw it and got me all connected there. It would take a little more effort for me to go and, and try to contact colleges and, and do it. And, and someday maybe I will, I, I would be so much fun. I'd love to go and do it. I, I like I said, I'd, I'd like to try any genre, or any kind of photography I can get my, get into. Uh, it just hasn't, I just haven't focused on it. It's, it's not my emphasis. It's not my biggest thing that I'm doing. I just, I like to have fun with it. And, and I like helping my local, the local kids too. They get to have some really fun images from their high school careers. Uh, a lot of them will never see college. They'll never have the chance to have a a higher end photo photo taken of them doing their sport. So they, they just get thrilled by it too. They really love it. So it's really fun. Oh, absolutely. I can imagine. Now, do your your high school sports for the girls and boys basketball teams, did they also end up in the high school yearbooks? Yeah, yeah. They they definitely used some of the photos there in the yearbook, too. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. So that got you more exposure with the with the high school sports teams. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Now, uh, are you still doing the basketball for both boys and girls, or has that kind of changed recently for you? 
it has changed recently. So the the coaching staff and the uh, the team moms and so on that I was working with, that's all turned over at the school. Plus a new school got opened up here and my kids have moved to the new school. And so I, I need to go and establish that relationship with the the new school now and and do that because I want to shoot where my kids are going and I, I don't want to go back to the, the other high school. So I have a little bit of work to do to, to get in there. And I'm going to probably start with soccer this time because my son's going to be trying out for the soccer team. So I'll be uh, talking with them about doing the, the team photos for soccer. Oh, nothing wrong with that. Well, the nice thing yep. is, is being you already were doing the basketball for the boys and the girls for a few pre- previous seasons at the old school. You've now got a good sports portfolio that yeah. you can take to the new school for, you know, for the soccer coach and the soccer parents and and hopefully do the soccer, maybe branch into basketball there as well. Yep. Maybe football just depends on, you know, I don't want you stretching yourself too thin because <laughs> I know you got a lot of yep. other irons in the fire. Right. Yep. That's, that's the plan. I'll, I'll see if I can re- establish that relationship with the school and we'll, we'll see where it goes. Absolutely. Okay, so question number three I have for you is what is your go-to lens kit for shooting sports? What are you using mostly as your glass for getting your great sports images? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because I mentioned I kind of had to upgrade that to, to be able to do it. I love talking about gear. I'm a, a true geek. I love the technical aspects of photography. And the, the nine years that I've been spending on this journey um, I found that there's just so much to learn to be passionate about. Uh, I don't have anywhere near the like the 10,000 hours of experience to say I've really mastered that art, but I'm working really hard at it. Continual progress that I'm making and, and gear is a part of that. Um, I also think that beginning photographers worry too much about the gear. At least they, they worry about it too quickly. There are a lot of reasons for this. Um, that's not really super important to the, this episode, but I am a firm believer, and you kind of mentioned this already too, that uh, entry-level cameras from like the last 10 years or so, they're so capable today that really what a beginner needs to do is learn everything there is to learn about how to use that camera and upgrading the camera body itself isn't likely to really be nearly as impactful as investing that money in better ways. Glass is one of them, the lens kits that we're gonna talk about right now, but also in training and, and uh, putting yourself in a place where you can you can go and, and do this stuff. So I'm still a crop sensor shooter today. I shoot the Canon 70 Mark II. My wife shoots the Canon 80D. We kind of shoot together. To, I, I love it that she's willing to go and, and do that with me, including sports. Um, really, really fortunate that she likes that. She isn't quite as passionate about it as I am, but it's it's something we can do together and we enjoy it. So it's it's really fun. The lens that I prefer to shoot on the crop sensor is the Tamron 24-70 f2.8. And this is the generation two version of that lens. On the crop, it's just about perfect at 24 millimeters at when the action's close to me. It's on the, the end of the court where I'm standing. And 70 millimeters gets me a lot of reach across the courts to get further away. So for basketball in particular, um, I really like that lens. For football, where the action tends to get a lot further from you than it does on a basketball court, then my tam- the Tamron 70 to 200 f2.8 G2 is the lens that I like there. And I'm, I'm I like the the Tamron brand. I that's just been like the best value for the price. But Sigma is another one that's really good. And they kind of, depending on like what sales or deals are going on, 
Um, Sigma may be a better option at some point in time with a, with better deals than Tamron, and and that wouldn't be a, a bad way to go either. Then of course there's the name brand, the Canon, the Nikon lenses. They're just so much more money, and I'm not convinced that they're really so much better. In fact, some tests have shown that the the Tamron and the Sigma, because they're newer lenses. They've been researched and, and built more recently than the Canon and Nikon options. They, they actually have like improved sharpness or a little better sharpness over the others. And anyway, they're, they're really good options, especially for hobbyists who where budget is, is such a big concern for the glass. And uh, so that's that's what I'd recommend for, for people who want to get into this is uh, is using those. Um, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say absolutely. And I agree with you 100 percent. And you mentioned that you're still shooting crop bodies. And to me, that doesn't really mean anything as far as right. the level of photography that you do or that you're capable of. Too many people get hung up on the differences between crop body and full frame. As long as, like you, you've been shooting crop body for quite a while and you know which lens gives you the best performance on that crop body with the one, one to six, you know, crop. You're getting a longer reach on the 70 millimeter end. You're getting a, a good medium telephoto on the 24 millimeter end, and that's perfect. And uh, I, I tell people this all the time, that this crop versus full frame is meaningless. There are so many paid professional photographers that are full-time photographers that are still shooting crop body, and they get amazing results. It's more the person and the glass than it is the body they're using. At least that's always been my opinion. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I totally agree. The the lens has more to do with it than the body for sure. And then your knowledge of it is the most important factor. So understanding that camera inside and out, that's really the the biggest thing. And and the place where investment should be made first is in that training, in the in learning how to use the camera over upgrading your body or even getting better lenses learning that training. And then when you figure out what is holding you back from getting the images you want to create, then address it with your gear. When you actually know, okay, this lens is too slow. It's it's one of the kit lenses. It doesn't have a, a fast enough aperture. I need to get a better lens because I can't get the images that I want with this lens. That's when it's time to go and, and pay for some new gear and upgrade. You can get so much out of it. So yeah, to totally agree. The the full frame crop discussion drives me crazy with how many times people say, "Oh, you've got to get to full frame." It's, it's just a whole another world. It's it's so much better, so much different. In sports, in particular, that can be a problem actually, um, because of frame rate. Frame rate is a really big deal for sports photography. How fast that it's not the shutter speed, but how fast you can go from taking a picture to taking the next picture, and that's. Uh, you know, you you hold down your your camera has a continuous drive mode where when you hold down the shutter button, it just fires as fast as it can, taking pictures as fast as it can. And uh, there are some full frame cameras that are horribly slow. You push down that shutter button and you get like five frames a second or sometimes less depending on the camera. And that's just not as good as getting seven or 10 or 12 frames a second. That's a big difference between catching the action at the apex, the point where you want it, versus because your frame rate wasn't fast enough, you have like just before or just after the, the point of the action and you miss the shot because you just don't have the frame rate there. So that there's there's aspects of the cameras that are more important than the sensor size. That's 
a factor. It's not the primary factor for at least sports photography. And, and it's, it's kind of a big deal to, to make sure you understand that and work through it and, and learn about it. That's, I had no idea when I was buying my first camera what a frame rate was for the still cameras. I kind of knew frame rates for video because we talk about that all the time, but I didn't know what frame rates were or even that I cared what a frame rate was. So once I, I learned enough about it, that guided what I needed to do and, and where I needed to take my gear so that I could create the images that I needed. Absolutely. And I have a lot of uh, photography friends that shoot sports. And I'd say, well, I count you as a friend. We only know each other through Facebook. <laughs> right. um, but with you and all the people I know here locally in the Atlanta area, back in my home state of Pennsylvania, believe it or not, out of all, I've probably got 30 friends that shoot sports. And not a one of them is using like a 1DX Mark II or Mark III. They're all using 7D Mark IIs, and they absolutely love them. Uh -huh. I would love to try a 1DX because, it, especially the very newest one they just announced, the frame rate is insane. <laughs> it's really, really fast. And uh, and I'd love to, to give that a go. But I, I'm guessing that Canon's going to release some other R cameras this year that are going to really make that a different story too and see, see where that goes. But yeah, the 70 Mark II, the frame rate and uh, focus system, it's really made for sports. It does such a good job with it. And it's, it's more important to have those factors than it is the full frame sensor. Absolutely. Now that is the interesting that you brought that up because I messaged you about that recently on Facebook. And it is in, intriguing because some of my sources, as well as the sources that are used by the gentleman that runs Canon Rumors and some of the yep. other sites, everything seems to be pointing at the possibility that Canon may roll out by this summer a 12 to 20 frame per second version of the EOS R, whether they're going to call it the R5 or R6, I don't know which one it's going to be, or they can be just placeholder names. I'm expecting them to do an EOS, what I call RS, to a high megapixel body that will replace the older 5DS right. and SR, which I used to have the SR. Great camera. But it's going to be intriguing because if they drop a dual card slot EOS R derivative this summer with 12 frames per second mechanical and 20 with the electronic shutter, that's going to be a game changer for a lot of sports photographers that never went to a full frame body before because it was cost prohibitive. I mean, if they can keep this EOS R with those kind of specs and a really, you know, a considerably lower price point to better compete with Sony, because Sony's got amazing camera bodies right now, especially for sports. Oh, and yeah. that's going to, I mean, that's going to be, and I've been telling people for the last couple of years, that's where the big battle is going to be in the camera world. It's going to be Canon versus Sony because they both have very deep pockets. Their portfolio products is very diverse, where Nikon isn't quite that lucky. Canon's got their medical imaging technology that makes them a lot of money. Their cameras are a small portion of their portfolio of income. And Sony's the same way. I mean, Sony's got game systems. They got TVs. They got stereos, Blu-ray, DVD, all this other stuff. For them as well, their camera division is a very small part of their income. So I think the big battle is going to be between those two. And if Canon releases an EOS R architecture, a based architecture camera this summer that has those sports capabilities, that's going to be a game changer for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. I, I'm really excited. I, I'm, I'm looking at potentially buying a new camera this year um, just 
because it's it's about time I've gone eight years with the camera I've got, <laughs> and uh, I, I would like to have a little bit improvement in the dynamic range, and so so I'm I'm looking to potentially upgrade, and and right now I have my eye on the Canon 5D Mark IV, Sony. I would love to go there, but the cost of time that it would take for me to do that is is too great. I can't I can't really buy Sony stuff and keep my Canon stuff. I'd have to sell my Canon stuff first, which means I'd be without a camera, and then buy the Sony stuff and at a, at a more expensive cost for sure than what I'd get out of my my Canon gear. So it just doesn't make sense for me to to be doing that as a hobbyist. I, I just I can't be without my camera. It's it's too much uh, effort and cost for me to get there. Even though I love, I've rented it and and it's fun. I, I like it. Um, but Canon, Canon's probably where I need to stay for right now. So I was looking at the Canon 5D Mark IV. It's been out for a few years, and and the price has come down enough in that, and the frame rate's high enough that I think it would work out well for me. But I'm definitely waiting until Canon releases these new R bodies that they the rumors are swirling on this this year. See what they have, and see if the price point is close enough to the 5D Mark IV where I may pony up whatever extra there is and get there, but we'll, we'll see. It, it all depends on kind of the pricing and what the specs are that come out in the official announcement when that comes. I'm just really excited about it. It looks like some, some really fun options. Oh, absolutely. And for any of the listeners that don't already know this, because I know somebody's going to hit me up an email or, or some other form of communications about this, you're going to say, well, Jeff, you could go to a Sony body and just get an adapter to use your Canon glass. It's not going to work for sports, folks. Jeff will be one of the people to tell you that adapted lenses on a Sony, you suffer greatly in your autofocus performance. And that's what you need the most when you're shooting sports. You've got to have that super fast, super accurate autofocus. Yeah, I've, I've actually tested it. I, I rented the <laughs> A7R three and uh, an adapter to adapt my Canon glass to it just so I could specifically test that out. And it, it did okay, but not good enough. It just, it, it missed focus too much and made it so I missed a lot of shots when I went to that basketball game. So yeah, it's, it's not really a, a solid enough option for that to, to go well. Now that was a little bit over a year ago. So the adapters have had firmware updates since then. There's probably been releases of new adapters. So it's probably time to test that again. But uh, yeah, the, the initial testing and, and even keeping up with it, just with uh, the other people, the other experts in the area that I that in that field that I keep up with, they're all saying it, there's just no replacement for native glass. It's it's the adapters are, are decent. They might work for portraits, but sports is just not there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, and you've said this before, and I've shared this with my listeners before. If you're if you were starting out today and you weren't already invested in any platform, then yeah, I would consider going to Sony just because they have way more of a head start on everybody else, and especially if you want to go full frame mirrorless. But yeah. if you're already invested in something else, it's not especially if you're a hobbyist, it's not that easy to pull the trigger on no. absolutely changing out all of your gear. I mean, you're gonna lose money selling your used stuff. You're going to be paying top dollar for all the new stuff on the new platform. It just, you know, it doesn't make sense. It, there's yeah, and, no and logic to it at all. People don't usually think about the other aspects too of not only the cost, but there's knowing how to do something with your camera. Reaction time in sports photography is critical. It's it's a area I know I still need tons of work is improving my reaction time, improving my ability to be able to get my camera where it needs to be with the right focus at the right time. 
is such a challenge if you swap out the camera system all of what you've built up in the way of muscle memory, knowing the menuing system, knowing how the camera works, what its strengths are and weaknesses are, that all goes out the window too. You're kind of starting over there and it's tough to be able to, to do that. It's it's one of the challenges why I've, when I've rented those cameras just to try them out, I, I like, oh boy, I know I'm missing stuff just because I am so used to Canon and this is different enough. It's a real struggle to uh, to have this work well. And it's just another aspect of it that almost nobody thinks about that there's there's a real important factor there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's not like you can reformat your muscle memory like a computer. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and you've been shooting Canon for a long time and especially doing sports. The other thing to think about, and a lot of people probably, maybe this doesn't creep into their mind as they're shooting, but if you've been using a particular system for several years, You've gotten to the point where you know that system and especially that body so well that as you're shooting sports, you probably never take your eye away from the viewfinder. You can change all of your settings on the fly quickly and easily with a couple of finger movements and not miss any of your shots. Where if you've got to retrain your brain for a whole new architecture, a whole new menu system, whole new button configuration, it's starting at ground zero all over again. And that's going to take you quite a bit of time. Absolutely true. Yeah, I, I don't even have to think about where I need my fingers to be and, and what I need them to do. Um, my thought process is is just super fast with Canon now where I know if I need need to change something, um, I just have to think about I need to change something and my fingers go do it. And um, building that up takes some time and switching systems just completely breaks that. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. And even my friends that shoot Sony, they'll be the first to admit that Sony's menu system is still not the greatest, especially when you want to get things done quickly. They're getting yeah. they're getting better, but they don't they don't have it quite as ironed out as like Canon and Nikon do as far as their menu system goes. Yeah, the battery life was a challenge there and the uh the ergonomics. I just found the ergonomics to be kind of tough, at least for my hands. I have I'm six foot two, so I, I have pretty large hands. And it, it was a challenge. I, I didn't like the ergonomics of it as I shot the, the Sony in the basketball game. I, not that I couldn't get used to it because I, I certainly could. I, I, those aren't like deal breakers by any stretch of the imagination. It's just some other things that I learned as I tried them out at the sporting, sporting events that like I, I really needed two batteries. I have to change at halftime because it just doesn't do good enough with the batteries. Yeah, that was something I was going to ask you. If when you rented the Sony, did you get one with a battery grip or without? Because maybe with the battery grip, because I have large hands like you do, the ergonomics might have been a little bit better. But to be honest, for me personally, I haven't picked up a Sony body in probably three or four years now. And I'm contemplating getting an A7R4 this year. Not getting away from Canon. I've got Canon and Fuji <laughs> medium format right now. But just so I have a little bit more diversity in my bodies. And as you were talking earlier about third-party lenses, Tamron's got some amazing, very fast prime lenses for Sony that are under $400. I mean, that's oh, insane yeah. for high-quality glass. So, yeah, I didn't. I didn't rent it with the grip, so that certainly could be a, uh, make a change there. And, and I, like I said, I could totally get used to it. It just was not as comfortable as my Canon stuff. Maybe it's because I'm so used to the Canon. So, uh, you know, it's it's just a factor as you're switching. There's stuff like this that you don't think about. You're like, man, I, this is just harder for me to hold. 
Uh, it's good to rent that so you can kind of get that feel before you go dive in and see what it is. So we better could help there. It could have helped with the how long I would have to, if, so I wouldn't have to change a half time between uh, batteries. But um, yeah, I, I rented it and I only rented it with one battery, not really thinking about that possibility that it could only go a half. And it, it, it went more than a half a basketball, but not by much. And so I actually had to, I ended up totally exhausting the battery before the end of the game. And I, I didn't have anything else to shoot. My wife was using our other Canon camera and I didn't bring my, my Canon with me. I just brought the Sony. So I, I ended up not being able to get the last, you know, four or five minutes of the basketball game because the battery battery gave out and it's just stuff I hadn't thought of before. So all stuff that's solvable, you can easily get another battery and have that go. And so it's not to say that, that the Sony cameras are terrible for sports, not by any means. They're, they're great cameras. I'd love to be able to invest in them and know that, yeah, there are some shortcomings, but, and they're, they're very easy to overcome. Uh, it would be, it'd be fun. I think it would, it would be lots of fun to do that, but I'm in Canon. I, it's doing what I need. And so I'm, I'm planning to stay there for now. Absolutely. And circling back for just a second, when we were talking about adapting lenses, sounds like you might have another good photo taco podcast episode there with <laughs> trying out the newer adapters with the newer firmware and see how much, if any, their performance has improved using say can glass on a Sony body. Yeah, for sure. I, it, um, I may rent Sony again. Um, like if I do the soccer season this year, I may rent it again just so that I get that experience of, of trying it and testing it out between the two. Cause it's valuable information for people to have to be able to do that. So I, I like being able to test that out. Absolutely. Now let me ask you, if you do decide to do that this year for soccer, are you going to go with one of the Sony R series? Or are you going to go for trying out the a nine Mark two, which is an actual sports body? Yeah, that's, it's a good question. Um, it probably will depend on the price. <laughs> if, if it's, I, I can uh, definitely understand that. Yeah, if it's a lot more money, I'd just stick with the R and, and test it. But yeah, All it right. just depends. Okay, so let's get on to question number four. What advice can you give to any of the aspiring f sports shooters out there? Yeah, so the advice is get <laughs> on it. <laughs> Go do it is the biggest piece of advice. Uh, don't let any anything hold you back on it. Like experience, don't let that be a reason not to try it. Uh, gear, don't let that be a reason. You can rent or you, you can probably do quite a bit with the gear you have as long as you know how to use it. So if, if knowing your camera well enough to be able to understand how to shoot that shoot sports is holding you back, then that's the thing to work on. Go learn how to use your camera and do some do testing of stuff that's moving fast until you, you have it down so that you can freeze that and, and get the kind of images that you want. Um, once you're there though, like if you think you're ready to give this a try, this is always the challenge and, and I didn't know how to break into it either when I was first doing it, is, is how do I even get permission to go do this? How do I how do I break into this? Uh, it depends on where you live. Some some places you may have a high school that is totally flooded with people who want to shoot and it's really tough to break in. Um, others like, you know, this new high school in my area that just started up, I don't think they have a lot of established relationships. So the, the timing is perfect for me to go and try to get in there. But the thing to do, I, the the way that I got in was accidental and the, but it, it would work, I think, for nearly anyone. That's getting in touch with like a team mom, maybe a coach, but a team mom is usually the coaches usually pawn this kind of thing off to them anyway. <laughs> they, they don't, the coaches want to deal with the X's and O's and players and 
and uh, teaching them and getting the most out of them. They don't want to deal with photos. <laughs> it's just not part of their thing. So uh, the team mom is usually the ones that are going to arrange to have like the team photos done and potentially help you to get on the sidelines during a game. And it's tough to go after the boys first because there's more likely it's more likely that there's other photographers that are already shooting for the boys, especially on an established school. But I'll bet um, a lot that there's not anyone shooting the girls. <laughs> there's there's nobody out there shooting uh, like, you know, women's volleyball, if they do that or women's basketball, probably not. And so if you get in touch with you find out who the team mom is for the women's basketball team at the high school and you let them know that you would love to be able to be on the sidelines to shoot their basketball games and you'll share the photos that you get. Uh, I'll bet it works. <laughs> I'll bet it happens and they get you there. And uh, and that's that's how I got in. And that's how I did it. So, so that would be good. Football is way harder. Um, when I, I, I shot a couple of football games just because the basketball coach got me in not because of football and the football team had an exclusive agreement with the photographer and had for several years. So there is just way tougher. There's so many photographers that want to go shoot football. That's a much more competitive field and you're probably going to need a lot more experience to be able to break in there and have anything happen. And so, so women's sports is the way that I suggest that you, you kind of get started in this and practice like um, be, being on the court side and shooting is totally different than being in the crowd and trying to shoot and trying to follow the ball or make it so that you're shooting for the team and not for an individual. That was a big transition for me, learning how to do that. So, so getting on the sidelines, getting practice in there, doing it so that you can figure out how you want to leverage the strengths of your equipment and create the images you want is, is there. As far as technique, you really need to learn to use the focusing system of your camera. Uh, I really highly recommend back button focus. Some people really hate it. So if, if you can't get it, it just doesn't work for you, then, then that's fine. But I, that seems to have really helped me as I was getting in there. But learning the focusing modes, the focusing system, how do you use the focusing system? How do you use continuous autofocus? Uh, that's a, a critical aspect of this. So practicing at home as much as you can. I, I had my son um, roll basketballs towards me as part of my practicing to learn how to use the system. I would focus on the ball as he was doing it. And then I, I learned what I had to do to make my camera work so that I could have that focus on the basketball happen as it rolled towards me. And, uh, and so that really helps. So whatever it is to, to help you learn how to do it, but practicing continuous autofocus and, and understanding exactly how your autofocus system works. It might mean getting in the manual and it, that kind of stinks for a lot of people, but, but it might mean you need to go like actually read the manual. And if you don't understand what the manual is talking about, then you got to, you got to play with it and, and maybe look for some other sources of information so you can figure it out. Um, another aspect of it that I think is important for people that are learning is understanding that it's a serious battle between having enough light and freezing the action that you're going to have with most of sports shooting, especially indoor. Sometimes you may be lucky uh, where you'll have soccer or football that's happening while it's still daylight. And, and then that's much less of a problem. But uh, if it's indoor or it's, it's outdoor at night, you, the light is just awful. <laughs> it's really, really awful. And you're having to, to uh, figure out the best balance between getting, freezing the action and having enough light for, for maintaining good image quality. Uh, so the basic settings that I, I recommend is 
an aperture as wide open as you can get it. F2.8 is good. F1.8 is better if you can get there. Uh, it's, it's pretty hard. Um, and then no slower than four times the longest focal length of your camera. And ISO at 100, of course, you, we want everything to be ISO. Well, ISO as, as low as you can get it, but still having uh, that light meter kind of getting to zero. So yeah, actually ISO 100 is probably never an option. <laughs> I said that wrong. It's a, it's going to be a high ISO. You're going to need to have, have a high enough ISO. And I'm going to talk more about that just a second here. With my crop sensor cameras, when I'm shooting that 24 to 70 f 2.8 lens, um, that means I'm, I'm generally shooting the slowest I dare shoot is one four hundredth of a second, which is really slow for a shutter speed for sports. So you, you ideally want it faster than that. But I've been able to figure out how to hold my camera stable enough and have uh, my technique of, of how I'm holding the camera work so that I can get away with one four hundredth of a second and have um, acceptably sharp, acceptably, uh, frozen action. Um, I'm okay even with just a little tiny bit of movement sh of, of, uh, showing up in the photos because then you can tell that they're actually moving. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, they're not frozen in time and it's kind of fun. And then my ISO is generally around 6,400 and I'm going to share a little bit more about ISO specifically for that in just a second here. And then if I'm shooting that 70 to 200 F2.8, I have to go all the way up to 1 800th of a second, which is a lot, That's it's it's a lot less light that you're dealing with at 1 800th of a second. So now my ISO has to increase up to like, you know, 12,800 or so in order to uh, compensate for the, the shutter speed having to go high enough. The focal length is kind of the biggest factor there. You gotta go four times that focal length, the, the longest focal length you're shooting with, to make it so it can really freeze the action. And then it's just a massive battle. You just don't have enough light and it, it's it's really tough. Those are kind of the starting point settings. Um, the light that having you'll, you'll have in your gym may be different. You, it might be worse than that. It might be better than that. Your technique, how you hold the camera might mean you just can't get a, a sharp image at one four hundredth of a second and, and you're gonna have to go faster. Uh, so it's, it's a big battle. You're gonna have to go test and try out. So the, the one thing, other thing I wanted to mention for someone getting into this is we talked about misconceptions that people have, and I don't want to get into the massive details here. I, I have a, a Photo Taco podcast episode if people want to get into more of the details that we'll put in the show notes. Um, but the there's a people, photographers generally assume or have been taught the higher the ISO, the, the higher the noise in the photos. And while that kind of happens to sort of work out that way, the noise in photos doesn't come because of high ISO. It comes because of a lack of light. <laughs> That's why we have noise in the photos. And it's actually really amazing when you do a proper test of this to be able to see how good high ISO does with the very limited light and the noise that's there. It's, it's incredible what these modern cameras are doing to make that work. And I, like I said, I wanna get into the details. The, the downside though is, it, so it's, it noises there, it's gonna be a factor, it's just gonna be part of this process because we have such little light, there's just, it's just a reality. You're gonna have noise in the photos. Nobody cares when you have a nice image overall, how much noise is in that photo. Least of all mom or the athlete themselves, for them to see themselves frozen in action in a game, 
they don't they don't notice the noise at all. It's just it's not even a factor. The thing that does become a problem though, more with higher ISOs, and this is the part that no photographers ever seem to talk about, the dynamic range of your camera goes down as the ISO goes up. The, the higher you take the ISO, the less difference there your camera can have between the brightest white and the darkest dark. And so that is the more problematic problem. That's the bigger issue than noise in your photos. If you crank that ISO, you start to lose some of the definition between the edges of detail in the images because it doesn't have good enough dynamic range. So keeping the ISO as low as you possibly can, even to the point what I do with my crop sensor cameras is I underexpose my images on purpose. I don't take the ISO so high to get a perfect exposure. I usually have it between one and two stops underexposed because I'm gonna fix the exposure in post and I have better dynamic range not having taken the ISO so high. I get sharper images. Um, photographers may use the word like muddy. It may look muddy um, when you increase that ISO really, really high. There's a, a really excellent scientist who has done a bunch of research on this and he's created his own dynamic range metric that he calls photographic dynamic range. And that's why I did a podcast episode with him. He came on the show and talked about this number and what the ISO impact is on that number. And he's kind of determined, and I agree after I've done my own testing, that a, a photographic dynamic range number of six is about the lowest you want to get on that PDR number before stuff starts to really become muddy and the images starts to get impacted, which means, um, and, and then every camera has their own dynamic range kind of capability that's there mapped to the ISO on his chart. So that, that's over at photons2photo.net is the, the resource there. So you can go and you can pick your camera and you can kind of see at what ISO levels the PDR number is at. And with my Canon 7D Mark II, I know I really can't shoot above ISO 3200 or I start to impact my the, the quality of my image, not from a noise perspective again. This is like how efficiently, how well I can detect edges in detail. And that's, that's a really a more important factor in, in how this works. And so to get the most out of my images, I know I just don't really wanna go above 3200 ISO. And I'm gonna try to make other choices or other things happen to make it so that I can get the images I want and not have to crank my ISO above that. For my ADD, the dynamic range is a little better. It's a newer camera and the ISO, I can go about 4,000 and not get below that six PDR number. And just listening if, in case you, so you don't have to go look it up yourself, um, just give you the same kind of numbers for some other cameras. The 5D Mark III, Canon 5D Mark III, 6,400 is PDR six. And the 5D Mark IV, the dynamic range is much better. You can get all the way up to 8,000 on the 5D Mark IV. And that's one of the reasons I'm kind of interested in, in potentially going to that body because the frame rate's still high and the dynamic range is, is good even at ISO 8,000. So that's, that's awesome. That Sony A7R III and R4 um, are both 8,000. The Nikon D850 is 6,400 and the Nikon D500 is 5,000. That's all tested by 
this scientist and, and he's got some really thorough technical information about how he's testing these cameras and how he comes to those numbers. But all of that's kind of the, the basics for getting started into sports photography. And if you didn't understand a lot of what I just said there, that means you need some time working on, on your exposure triangle and, uh, and figuring out how to use your camera. Absolutely. And uh, we'll make sure we put the link to uh, his uh, chart for the PDRs in the show notes for this episode as well. And it's great to have you where you got the basic information for the most common, most popular bodies that are currently on the market. I did find it interesting, though, that the dynamic range didn't improve at all between the Sony a7R 3 and 4. It's not at all. It's just not enough where you could make that jump to the next ISO level. So it's uh, probably okay. a little over 8,000, but you don't have, you can't go like 8,010 or 8,050. So uh, you, you can't quite get to the next number in ISO um, to, to get there. And it's not to say that the image is gonna be complete garbage if you go above 8,000. Of course not, it's, they're, they're still gonna do a pretty good job. It's just that um, you, you have the best balance of things when the ISO is set at these levels, and then you just kind of deal with it in post. It's gonna be an underexposed image in some cases. I mean, 8, ISO 8000 probably actually puts the exposure at a pretty good level for me in most of the places where I've shot to where it's not truly underexposed anymore. But um, if you have to go above that, you can, you just probably wanna do some testing then at that point. Are you happy with the images that you get when you take the ISO above that? If you are, then awesome, do that. If you're not happy, or if you wanna know kind of where scientifically people have tested this and determined the, the balance of where the, the sweet spot is, is uh, not taking the ISO above this and, and try to get either more light or lower your shutter speed. Absolutely, and I find it interesting that you prefer to shoot your camera one to two stops underexposed because that's something I always do as well. Yeah. So that, that's it, definitely interesting that we both do that. It's not in all cases, but for sports, because there's this lack of light, uh, it, I just, my own images, I've tested this enough to know, like, I know I'm happier with it being underexposed and compensating in post on the computer instead of in the camera, because it, I just like the results better. I think the images look better when I do that. So it's purely just because I, I like the end result better. You like the aesthetic, you get better that way. That's understandable. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So for question five, what is your favorite shoot from the last few years? And can you tell us the story behind it? Yeah. Um, so this was super easy. <laughs> when you asked me this question, <laughs> I, I knew exactly the moment that I wanted to talk about uh, with this one, because this was an incredible moment. I haven't had anything like it since. And it, it's it has to, all has to do with the emotion. It's not the image itself because the image itself is is okay. It's not great. <laughs> it's fine. It's not like if someone just saw the image and didn't know the story behind it, it wouldn't be nearly as impactful. No one would look at this image like, wow, I can't believe you captured that. That's not the point of it. The point of it is the story and the emotion behind it. As I was there shooting this, uh, there were tears in my eyes and everyone else who who knew what was going on. So let me let me bring you in on the story behind the image, and you you can share this image with your listeners in your show notes too, to Liam. So here's here's what happened. Um, this is in the 2017 to 2018 season for the the women's basketball team. There was a, a young lady, a senior. It was going to be her senior year. Preseason in practice, she broke her leg 
freak accident. Um, she had to be put in a cast. And she was told by the doctors, just given the time frames of when she'd heal and the season, when the games would be, that she was probably going to miss the entire season. She she wasn't going to get to play a single game of her senior season. That she had, she'd been on the team for three years, a lot of expectations. She was one of the major contributors. It was really tough for her to hear the news. And uh, she still was was incredible through the season. She uh, she worked out with the teams constantly. She was always trying to do her own exercise, even though she couldn't. She had a cast, so she couldn't do much with her legs. And um, and she was there at all the games. She even dressed most of the games so that she could just be there for her team, help her team. She was kind of became a you know another assistant coach through the season. But it was killing her. It was really killing her that she she couldn't play. And then the team actually did really well that year. Um, they were. And in the last regular season game, um, they were, she dressed, oh, sorry. And just before that last regular season game, because she had rehabbed so hard, she'd worked so hard on, uh, on coming back. They actually were able to take the cast off like the week of the game. I think it was like a Tuesday. The game was a Thursday and she got her cast off on a Tuesday, something like that. And, um, and so, but of course, muscles had atrophied and there was, she was not in any shape to really be able to play in the game. And the doctors didn't want her to do it anyway. She just came out of a cast. They don't want her in a contact sport like that right off the bat. So, um, but they, they had her dress and they had her there and, and she was just going to sit on the sidelines again, this time without the cast, but she had no expectation that she was going to actually be able to get into the game and play. The team did super well. They were blowing out this final regular season opponent and, um, they were doing really good. So it came down to the last few seconds, the last couple of possessions. And um, there was a foul or ball went out. So time stopped. They, they, they called timeout and they decided there's only a few seconds left in the game. I'm going to put the, we're going to put this girl in so that she can be on the court. She's not going to do anything. There's only a few seconds left. We're not going to, uh, we, we, there was no plans to have her even like drop a play for her or anything. It was just, to get her on the court, let her be the ball be inbounded. And she was on the team and, and have that little tiny moment there. So they go to inbound the ball and the other team kind of intercepted the ball and tried to call a timeout that they didn't have. So now there's free throws that are going to be shot. And, and because they had put her in, she was eligible to be able to shoot those free throws, those technical free throws. And as soon as she realized that she was going to be the one that could shoot those free throws. And all the teammates were the ones that kind of helped her figure that out. They started to say, let her do it. Let her do it. Let her shoot. Um, they, she, she started to cry almost immediately. Just the, the emotion just swelled with her and she was, she was already crying and she was like, yes, I want to do this. This will be great. So she goes to the free throw line and tears are just streaming down her face. And she, she can hardly even see the basket. She's trying to wipe the tears away from her eyes so that she can see the basket. And she, she shoots the first one and it kind of bounces around the rim a little bit, does go in. It wasn't a, a perfect swish shot. And then continuing to just cry as she, uh, she aimed for the second one and then just swished the second one. She kind of got her control over her emotions a little bit more for the second shot and, and just swished it. And then, um, you know, the other team inbounded the ball, the sec, the last seconds ticked off, nobody did anything. And then the entire gym just like flooded the court 
and we're, they lifted her up and we're, we're so excited that she got to shoot the two final technical free throws of this basketball game in the senior season where she wasn't expected to be able to do anything. It was an incredible moment. So much fun to be able to shoot. So I created a little image after the game, had the score on there. And then I put right behind her kind of extracted her out of the image and I, I made the rest of the background look uh darker and I have for the love of the game written in the background because she just loved that game so much and it was so impactful for her as her senior season to be able to get that chance to be able to to get in there and shoot those free throws it was so much fun oh that was amazing and I know I'll probably get razzed for this but uh that brought a little bit of a tear to my eyes because <laughs> I can definitely relate to because I did some sports in high school. I didn't do basketball. I did mostly track and cross country, but I had plenty of injuries in my time. So I can definitely understand where the young lady was coming from, you know, being there the entire senior season and not be able to participate until the very last game of the season. That would definitely be a highly emotional point in her life right there. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible, incredible emotion. I love that image. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, I think it's a great image. I love it. And I love the work you did with it. Uh, the composite you made out of it is fantastic. I mean, I love the colors and I love the way you have everything. Everything just works perfectly in that image, the way you did it. That's fantastic yeah, work. All right. So let's get on to what is your favorite sports sport to shoot? Now, I know it's probably going to be basketball because that's what you shot the most. But what would you say is also the easiest to shoot? Yeah, basketball is probably my favorite, but it, it's not just because that's the one that was the one I happened to, to be able to break into and, and be able to do a lot of shooting of. It's also the sport I grew up playing. I still play today on, on occasion. Uh, it means I know the sport really well. I know that game really well. And because of that, I can anticipate what's going to happen. And I, I gives myself a little better chance of being in the right spot at the right time to get the shot. And um that's what I think the factor, the, that's the, one of the bigger factors in when you ask what's the easiest sports to shoot, it may be the one you're most familiar with is the one that you are, are is going to be the easiest for you to shoot. So, I, I mean, for example, I, I love shooting football too. I've done it a few times, a couple of times, not enough that, um, that I, I really feel like I'm really super competent at that one. And I've watched football all my life. I love watching football too. It's super fun. But I've never played. I didn't play high school. Um, I, I played, you know, pick up games with friends and family or whatever. But it, I don't have the same level of knowledge uh, and instincts with football as with basketball because I played that way more. And so I, I think that puts me at a disadvantage. I'm scrambling a little more than someone who maybe did play or has been around it way longer or even shot it way longer. I think after you shoot any sport for a period of time, that you those instincts about where to be, where to have your focus, how to frame it, all of those things come as you get experience. Even if you've never played the sport yourself, as you get experience shooting it, those things come. And so I think if you've got experience with a sport, that's probably going to be easier for you to shoot than one that where you've never played it yourself or done it yourself. Uh, and then so the other factors would be like the amount of light. Is this a sport where there's tons of light usually 
or is there not? If, if there's more light, if they play, if the times when they play is during the day or when there's a lot of light, that's going to be easier to shoot for sure than it is at night. Um, you'll have a, a lot more options in how to set up your camera so you can get nice crisp shots if you can increase that shutter speed even more. Um, so so that that's what I'd say about it is familiarity with the sport probably has more of an impact about how easy it is to shoot than it does the sport itself. Yeah, absolutely. And for those listeners that didn't really participate in sports in high school, you're pretty much going to have to start from scratch. Because <laughs> you're be not going to have any of those instincts for any particular sport if you didn't play them. Like myself, uh, my coaches, the coaches on my high school football team try, kept trying to get me to play football. They wanted me, I think, as a running back or something like that because I was fast and I was big. And so it was really hard to stop me on the field when we would play football, you know, just in gym class. Uh-huh. You know, the opposing team always had a hard time stopping me. But I didn't have the passion for football. I was always a runner, so I stuck with cross country and track. So shooting those, like you with basketball, would be pretty easy for me because I can anticipate what's going to happen, especially, you know, with something like the hurdles, which I ran, uh, or the longer relay races. But if you're somebody that didn't do any any sports at all in high school, then you might have a tougher time getting to that point where you can get comfortable shooting any particular sport. Right. And definitely shooting something outdoors where you have more daylight, like baseball, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. You got more daylight. You got more shutter options, lower ISO options, and more forgiving, more forgiving light for working with not, maybe not super fast lenses if you can't afford those yet. Right. You know, right. You, can, you can get away with using a three five to a five six kit lens if you're outside on a July afternoon shooting a baseball game because you've got tons of light. So then you can crank that shutter speed up so that right. you can freeze the action properly. Yep, that's very true. All right, so now, and I already know the answer to this question just because I've been listening to your shows long enough, and it's common sense to me anyways. <laughs> um, so you, are you using Photoshop to do your composites, or are you using an, uh, another program? Because I do have some friends that use programs like GIMP that are open source uh, for doing their layers and their composites and all that stuff. Yeah, and GIMP is certainly capable of doing it. Um, the stumbling block for GIMP, there's a couple of them. The first is there's no raw processing natively in GIMP. So you'd have to go process your photo in something else first and then maybe like take a TIFF over to GIMP. The other challenge is there's just not nearly the training options <laughs> to know how to accomplish something in GIMP like there is with uh, Photoshop. That's just the reality of it. So if you spend a lot of time <laughs> learning it, you almost have to learn it yourself then uh, then GIMP could be fine, and maybe that's what your, your friends have done. Or maybe they'll have some training that they could point people to. But uh, as I was looking into it, I, I started out trying to use GIMP because I didn't want to spend money on Photoshop. When I was first doing this, there wasn't a Creative Cloud Photographer's Plan where you could get Photoshop for $10 a month. It was Photoshop was $700. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> there's no, absolutely. There's no way I want to spend money on $700 on Photoshop. So I started with GIMP. And I could do some stuff, but I quickly ran into that wall. I was like, I just I don't have the same tool that I see in, like, the Photoshop tutorials people do. Uh, and I, don't, I just don't know enough about this to know how to do this. And so I, I quickly figured out, uh, well, I'm going to have to bite the bullet. And I found a way to be able to to get Photoshop and, and uh, have that be what I was using. So, yeah, I definitely use Photoshop in my composites. 
Uh, I start off with a template. So I, I think this is kind of an important thing to go through with people. How do you arrive at a final image with a sports composite? What's the process? So there's obviously going to be tons of ways to do this. The way that I have been successful is uh, I start off with the template itself. So uh, usually with sports composites, you want to take something from the live action and either extract the athlete, meaning like you you select just the pixels of the athlete from your photo, copy them and paste them onto some other background. Or you, uh, like I did with the, the young lady shooting the free throw, I just want to like emphasize her as opposed to like all the other stuff in the in the environment, in the background there. So, um, but I, I'm starting off with a template, something I want to put the athlete into that looks really cool. There's lots of uh, templates for sale out there. Um, I've created a lot of my own too. I've thought about selling some of my templates as, uh, and, and I'm working towards being able to do that, but I don't have any today. Uh, anyway, I, I create a template first. And, and the reason I start with the template first is even though these aren't supposed to be something that are very, really believable, it's not like we're trying to make people think that everything was shot at once because that's, it doesn't, it's not even attempting to do that. Still having the lighting match on the athlete versus the template is, is really helpful to making it look professional and ending up with a better result. So I start off with a template usually. Now in the case of taking a, like a game photo, I'm gonna design the template around the photo because you're not changing, you don't have an opportunity to change the light or set up the light on that. So I'm, I'm gonna start with the photo and I'm gonna build a template around it in that case. But if it's team photos, individual photos, you wanna make like just a, a really cool, maybe even like a senior photo and you wanna, they, they were an athlete and you wanna make a cool image with that senior, now you do have your options to be able to set up the lighting. And a, a lot of my images uh, lately with sports composites, that's what I'm doing. I'm starting with a really cool template I'm figuring out what lighting I need to use as I shoot the athlete so that when I extract the athlete from the image that I'm taking with the camera and put it in, put them in the template, it's going to look really nice. It's going to look put together and like it belongs. Um, so, so there's lots of ways to be able to do that. Um, lots of, of techniques to learn. Flash is important with this then to control your light. And um, my very favorite setup is, uh, is using strip boxes. And those are like really long rectangular kinds of modifiers that you put on a flash. And I like to use them um, to the left and right of the athlete with the, uh, the box about three quarters of the way in front of them. So like three quarters of the strip box is in front of the athlete, but to the side of them, if that makes sense. Uh, and then you, so you, you take the photo, with those on that puts highlights on the edges of their body and then it kind of transitions to darker areas as you move towards the center of their body and it has a really cool grungy edgy kind of effect that you want with athletes totally different <laughs> than what you would do with a portrait of a person uh traditionally like headshots or whatever those those you want to have the light not really draw attention to itself you want smooth transitions from the highlights to the shadows well, with athletes, in order to really kind of make them look edgier, more intimidating, really profile the muscles on their body, you want those transitions to be 
sharper, the, the darker, the, the light to the dark to have more of an edge. It really shows the shape of the body better and, uh, and the, the attributes of an athlete better. It's, it's really fun to be able to do that. And then I put um, a key light usually in front of them too, just to fill in a little bit of the shadows and add a catch light in their eyes. So I'll use a, a soft box in front of them, probably camera left usually to me and uh, set that up so that it's, it's just lighting the front of them a little bit. I'll usually have those the strip boxes powered up higher than the the key light in the front because I, I really want the edges of the body to have the biggest highlights and uh, have more shadow across the front of them, which is totally different than than a lot of other things. I like using a white background as I'm shooting my sports composites. So usually I'm trying I'm going to extract the athlete, so I'm just dumping the background. You're you're totally eliminating the background. And uh, you can use all sorts of things to do that. Most people would probably think of like a, a green screen for that. We've all kind of become accustomed to like, if you want to remove a background, well, that's green screen. That's what everyone thinks of first. And uh, I have done a ton of testing around that. I'm convinced white is better, easier to work with. Maybe I should say it could just be me. Maybe it's because I just don't have the right skills, but I've tried all kinds of lighting techniques and different colors of green and I've tried so many things and it doesn't seem to really matter what I do or how the lighting is. Uh, it always still leaves a little green fringing around the edges. Even if you get the athlete far away from the background so you don't actually have light reflecting off of their skin, uh, it, it's, it's still a problem. And I end up having to eliminate some of the finer details around the edges because I got to get rid of that green. Yeah, green is a dead giveaway. Like there's, unless the, uh, the logo and the colors of the team are green where it's kind of going to blend in a little bit and you want green there, anything else, which is, you know, a lot more rare <laughs> is, uh, is going to be a problem. That green is going to look out of place and, and be so obvious. So you really have to get rid of it. And it, it means eliminating a lot of detail around the edges of the athlete, especially their hair if you use green, whereas white, white is really easy to make it look normal in any photo, in any of these composites. You can leave the white there as long as you have some kind of a light source in the background that can explain why the white is there. Then it feels like totally normal. So particularly around the hair, you can fake a flash uh, light source in the background being behind them. And now that explains why the white light is on the edges of the hair. And it's totally easy. That that works great. So I like a white background to being able to do this. Um, so once once I've done that, uh, the, then as I'm shooting, oh, and I also light that background. I, I light the white background. Uh, I use MagMod MagBounce modifiers on flashes to do that. But you, you can use bare flash. You can use whatever modifiers you want. And, and just trying to get it so that that white background is lit up pretty well. I make sure the athlete's standing a few feet away from them so that I don't get a ton of light from the background adding to the light that I'm putting on the athlete. But uh, that way, when I get in post, it, it makes it easier to kind of select that white background if it's lit well. Um, so that it, it almost so it's overblown. If, it, if you blow out the highlights on that white background, man, it makes it easy to select the athlete when you do that. Anyway, um, after I get the images on the computer, to create these composites, I, I kind of go through, it's like three basic steps. First one being uh, raw file into Lightroom, and I do the majority of my adjustments there. 
I like giving him a harsher, edgier look. So I use a little harsher light as I'm shooting. And then I will play around with the blacks and the whites and the contrast and clarity and vibrance and all of those sliders in Lightroom till I get the, the look that I, I want or the look I have in my head that's gonna match the template. And I started off with the template, so I kind of know what it is I'm going for as I'm, I'm working on this. So that's the first step. Then I'll, I'll round trip from there into Photoshop. It makes it nice when you're using Photoshop. You asked if I'm using it. It's so nice to have that tool just works flawlessly with Lightroom. It's it's a really cool thing to do. So you don't have to like save the file at some point out to the hard drive, then go load up another tool, bring the file in, make changes and go back. It, it's just, it works so well to make that happen. And then there's, there's some tools and plugins. There's lots of ways to extract that athlete from the background or, or remove the background from them. Um, I have tried a bunch of them. Some of them do work really well. Some of them don't work at all. <laughs> and uh, so, the, but the thing, my favorite way to do it is actually the built-in quick selection tool and then the select, select and mask workspace in Photoshop. So um, they do have a new feature in Photoshop that just added late in 2020 or 2019 that's called remove background. And it does okay. I found it to be a little buggy. I've had it crash Photoshop a lot, especially as I'm dealing with these big files. These templates that I use are, are actually really big. Some of them like 500 megabytes in size or bigger. And so, uh, and so it tends to crash Photoshop um, and it doesn't end up giving me the selection that's as useful as I find with the quick selection tool. So that's my very favorite one. It just happens to be totally built into Photoshop. No plugin required. You don't have to get anything else. You don't have to learn anything else. Just learn how to use the tools that are there in there in Photoshop with the quick selection tool. It takes like, you know, a couple minutes after you get good at it and you know what to do to make that rough selection. And then I will use the select and mask workspace from there to refine it. Really nice tools in there like refine edge brush to deal with hair in particular and making so you can extract them. There's some tuning parameters in there too, smoothing out the selection, feathering it, uh, changing the contrast or expanding a few pixels, uh, contracting a few pixels. There's lots of stuff you can do to make it so that you can really refine that selection and get the very best selection possible. When I'm happy with, oh, and then, and then there's also a way to view the selection on a white background or a, back, a black background. And that's really helpful too. If you know you're going to a darker background, then you can put, you can choose to have Photoshop show you in the select and mask workspace, a, your image on a black background, and you can kind of see right there what it's going to look like as you put it into the, the template um, and, and make sure that you've got the selection the way you want it. Or do you need to like eliminate some more of the white that came from it? Or if you're using a green background, more of the green, it's uh, it's really nice or, or vice versa. If it's a really bright template, you're going to be putting them in, then you can use the white background. You can also do this with the template itself there in the background and show it in the Selected Mass Workspace, but the resources that you need for that are generally so high, it makes the tool so slow, it's it's tough. So I, I wouldn't do that. I, I just work on this in the image itself, not inside the template. Don't even have the template loaded when I'm doing this. I just work on the image. And then when I'm done in the Selected Mass Workspace, I'm happy with what it looks like. Then I'll just save the output of the selection to a new layer with a layer mask. And so I have the original layer underneath and a new layer with a, a layer mask set. Then I will bring up the digital template, load that up in Photoshop and I'll copy, you have to use copy merged, the copy merged feature of the, the 
layer with the layer mask. And then I'll paste that into the template and put the, the athlete where I want him to be. I'll move around some things on the template. Um, there's nice things like sparkles or smoke or things like that that really add a lot of flair to the photos that I, I want to make sure match the image. Like if you have some sparkles that you want to have looking like they're around their hands, then you need to position them so that they're around their hands. And so I'll, I'll work on that too. But I have an example of one of my, my most recent projects. This is a picture of my daughter. She's doing dance. And uh, so we shot her in, in my studio here in my basement. So I set up the lights just like I'd said. And I, I created a little template or I, I put her in, uh, composited her in a couple of poses into a template that is really fun. Really, uh, I, I, it's so much fun. She loves it. Now we're going to print it up big and put it on her wall. It's, it's super fun. So even if you're not shooting sports regularly, you just want to do something cool with your own kids. Uh, a really fun technique to be able to learn. Yeah, that I mean that image of Emily is I mean it's beautiful. You did a great job with that composite. I love the coloring. I love the addition of the sparkles and the light rays at the top. Yeah. I mean, I could see that being a fantastic poster. Your daughter must absolutely love that image. She does, yeah. She really likes it. <laughs> yeah, that turned out really well. Great job, sir. Great job. Very, very impressed with your compositing skills. I need to get better at that. I did a little bit of it when I was at school in school, and I, I was fairly good at it, but I don't have the patience. And getting <laughs> back to, and I know you've talked about this before on your shows, the green background, that's one of the things that's always blown my mind, is like you, I preferred white because I always had troubles with a little bit of the green always still showing, like on the edges of the person or whatever. And it, every time I would try it with green, I would sit back afterwards and I'd be like, how in God's name do the people in Hollywood make it look so bloody easy? Right. I don't know if it's just they spend weeks uh, fine tuning and refining the edges. You know, if they have people that are dedicated that can do that, or maybe they've got, uh, well, they've probably got higher end hardware than you and I have for one thing. For sure. <laughs> that probably makes it a little bit easier, but especially in movies. I mean, and it still would be one thing. But in a movie, it's like, how do they make it? Because I've looked at a lot of movies that I knew for a fact, you know, certain portions of the footage were shot green screen, you know, and like uh, Deadpool 2 with Cable, you know, that's how they made his mechanical arm. That was all green screened. He had a green sleeve on and then they overlaid the mechanical arm over top of his real arm. But I, every time I look at something like that, and I'll even freeze it. And I'm like, OK, how do they keep all the green <laughs> fringing out? Because I've never had any luck with it. Yeah, I, I will say it's different in video. I've done a little bit of it in video now, too. I'm planning to uh, do a little bit of more video work with the <laughs> Photo Taco podcast and have some tutorials with video. And so I, I've been testing that out. It's different with video. It does. It, now, I, I think you still have to do a little bit of giving up the detailed edges, but it's different in video, especially because it's the people don't generally pause it like you just talked about. They don't generally do that. So as long as the green isn't obvious, it's moving by so fast that we don't tend to see it if it's there. Like you said, Hollywood has has a lot more tools and stuff to do there. Um, I know the lighting of the green screen, making it um, completely even is just critical to making that work well. And with the stills and doing sports composites, uh, trying to set that up is just not worth it for, especially if you're doing like high schools, cause you got to get in and out. You, you're going to be meeting them in their gym. You got to go set it up. 
And try, the, the level of effort it takes to get that perfect so that you can pull it off is so large. It's just not worth it for stills. It's just easier to deal with, to, to do white in this case, because our objective is different. We're not doing movie. We're not doing video. We're doing stills and we, we are going to be putting them in a digital template. And that's, it's, it's just different. So video is a, a different deal. Yeah, absolutely. And I, to be honest, I don't think it has anything to do with your skills in Photoshop because I have a lot of friends that do a lot of compositing for high school sports, college sports, and they all tell me the same thing. Don't even think about trying to use a green. <laughs> <laughs> it does not work. It's too difficult to get it out of your images. It's too, it's just too much hassle. They yeah. all use white as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's not just you. You're definitely doing things the right way from what all my other friends tell me that do a lot of compositing. Now, just out of curiosity, getting back to the Photoshop question for just a moment here. Um, I know that nowadays they have the Creative Cloud, so you can get Photoshop and Lightroom for $10 a month, which makes it a lot more affordable. Yep. But, and I've never tried this myself. I had a copy of it years ago. But is it possible to do composites with something more basic like Photoshop Elements? Or do you really need the, the supercharged version to get all the tools you need? Uh, okay, so to be honest, I've never even used Elements. So I, I couldn't speak to it for sure. But I do know that Elements has, uh, it doesn't have nearly all of the capabilities. The ones I'm talking about might be there in Elements today. That's, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, but I, I, I really don't know. Yeah, I wasn't trying to put you on the spot. I was just yeah. curious. Um, like I said, I had a copy of Elements a number of years back, and I didn't even use that much. I can't remember what tools it had that Photoshop full-blown also had, but yeah. I didn't know if it was possible to do that. And I tell people all the time, you know, look, Adobe, it's just the nature of the beast. Adobe is still pretty much king when it comes to photo editing software between Lightroom and Photoshop. I know there's more people that are using, you know, Capture One and other programs, Luminar, um, and there's people that absolutely love those. And sure. I like those programs as well. But like you, I've just been using Lightroom and Photoshop for so long, I can't see myself completely giving them up anytime soon. Yeah, and, and don't underestimate the importance of the training factor there too. That you'll, You will find good, competitively priced training, maybe even free, uh, on Photoshop like crazy. It'll be everywhere. Finding it on other software, uh, Affinity is another common one that's like a Photoshop replacement or there's PaintShop Pro. Um, there's, there are some other packages that have similar capabilities, but finding how to use it and finding templates that are going to work in them, it's just, it's not worth it. It's just go pay, go pay the $10 a month. <laughs> I know it's a subscription. <laughs> I know people hate that, but it's only $10 and you get access to all this stuff and it's, it's great. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with the fact that Photoshop and Lightroom have been around for, what, two decades now, you know, there's just so much more free training out there for both those programs than there are for any of the competitors. That's right. You know, it's going to be that way for a little while now. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, it's just the nature of the beast. Okay, so wrapping up this episode, where can my listeners find your work, sir? My website is uh, over at jsharmanphotos.com. The S is for my wife, Susie. So jsharmanphotos, and it's H-A-R-M-O-N. Uh, I do a couple of podcasts that we mentioned already. So Photo Taco, if you like kind of what I went through and some of the details here, uh, you're going to love Photo Taco. That's over at phototacopodcast.com, or you can find it in any of your podcatchers, whatever it is you use to listen to podcasts on your phone. Uh, same with Master Photography, not quite as technically oriented, 
we try to cover more tips and news there than, than the technical details, but that's masterphotographypodcast.com. Uh, I'm also going to be presenting at a retreat coming up in October, the Create Photography Retreat. And you can see the details at createphotographyretreat.com. Uh, it's in October. It's going to be in South Carolina in the Blue Mountains in the fall. We're going to have lots of presenters there. I'm only one of many. And I'm going to have a crash course on flash photography as a pre-retreat workshop that you could, uh, we don't have it quite up yet over at Create Photography Retreat, but it's coming soon where you could go sign up for that if you're interested. Fantastic. Now, are you guys, you guys still have openings for the retreat? Oh, yes. This coming year? Yep. Yeah, there's still still openings there. Uh, it probably will fill up if you, it's probably by the summer, middle of the summer, it'll be full. So, uh, so you, if you're interested in going there and, and learning a lot more about creating excellent images, then uh, we'd love to have you there. Absolutely. And I can recommend that to all the listeners. I haven't been to the retreat myself yet, but I am, I'm going back and forth about just playing hooky from work for a few days so I can come up there and attend the retreat anyways. I'm going to talk to my wife about it. I don't know if she'll want to, she's not going to want to go to the retreat because she's not into photography. So maybe I'll go to the retreat while I'm doing that. She'll go stay with some friends of hers in Raleigh uh, at the same time that week. So I'm going to see if I can't pull off coming up there and attending the retreat because I would love to meet all of you guys. It's been great talking to you today. Uh, hopefully down the road, I'm going to have Brent on the show as well. He's already said that he would definitely do it for me. Uh -huh. And uh, I would love to meet all you guys in person and take in your retreat. And all of my listeners, believe me, the Master of Photography podcast is fantastic. Jeff and the others put on a great photography podcast every week. The Photo Taco podcast is amazing as well. I've been listening to both of them for quite a while now. Gone back and listened to a couple of years worth of episodes on both shows, I think. I can't, I can't remember now how long we've been doing the, the Photo Taco one, but you guys do some great work, and I highly encourage all of my listeners to check out both of Jeff's shows, as well as his photography website and the Create Photography Retreat. Excellent. Yeah, I appreciate that. Jeff, I want to thank you again for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be my guest on this week's episode. And uh, maybe if I'm lucky, we'll get a chance to do it again later on down the road. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you very much, sir. You have yourself a fantastic day. Yeah, you as well. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, that wraps up episode 57, Talking Sports Photography with Jeff Harmon. He's a fantastic guy, super talented photographer, and a super talented photo compositor as well. He's got some amazing images that are going to be in the show notes for this episode. He's done some great work with those. Definitely check out both of his podcasts. Check out his photo site and see the work for yourself. And if you can do it, go ahead and head over to the Create Photography Retreat website and book your passage to the retreat so you can attend this coming October. I know it's a little ways down the road, but like Jeff said, the slots are going to fill up as they get into the summer. So if you want to get your spot reserved, go ahead and get it done now. All right, I'm going to wrap up this episode. I want to thank all of my listeners again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in iTunes and anywhere else that you might listen to the show. And also check out the Leo Photography Podcast Facebook group. Uh, one last thing, I did want to mention the winner of our first giveaway for 2020 was Georgia Butler. She has won the Edelcron 3D print kit 
and she has opted to go with the flex tilt head, uh, which I highly recommend. It's a fantastic uh, flex tilt head to use on your tripod or monopod. I've got a couple of them myself, really enjoy using them. They're a lot of fun and they do a really great job. So she'll be receiving her prize via priority mail shortly. All right, I wanna thank everybody again for listening and I will see you again in another seven days for episode 58.